Homestyle Green, episode 46. How do you figure out the impact of where stuff comes from to build your project? G'day, Matthew Cutler-Welsh here for Homestyle Green. Thank you very much for tuning in. really appreciate your company. This show is all about how to create a home that's good for you, your family, and good for the planet. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, so I really do appreciate you tuning in. And thanks to people who have signed up to the mailing list and also to uh, those who have sent in a few questions. Now this week I have just got off a Skype interview with Alex Bruce, who is in Perth, Australia. And Alex created something called eTool, and I'll let Alex explain what that is. But before we get into that, I do want to um, just answer a question that came through from Jeff a few weeks ago, and I did mention this, and apologies for taking a little while to get around to it, um, but had a few things going on, uh, exciting stuff. So anyway, Jeff asks, what is better to achieve uh, or aim for a high Homestar rating or a Passive House rating? So for those that don't know, have a look at homestar.org.nz. Homestar is essentially the environmental rating tool for sustainability for homes in New Zealand. It was created for New Zealand in New Zealand, although quite um, it was formed fairly well in line with the BREAM Code of Sustainable Homes from the UK. It's got a similar category. So it's an energy, it's a, sorry, it's not an energy, it's an environmental rating tool for houses. Passive House, we've talked about on this show, and definitely if you haven't checked out those episodes, do go back and listen to the couple of time, a couple of episodes we've had on Passive House. And that is mostly, if I had to sum it up fairly crudely, about energy, temperature, dryness, and airflow. Now, people in Passive House are probably going to um, correct me a little bit on that. But basically, a Passive House is going to get you something that is maintains a very constant temperature inside with very little energy and allow you to uh, have good control over that. Um, we talked to eHouse in episode 34 and we talked to Elrond Burrell who is an expert in the area in episode 30. So head back and listen to those if you want some more info. Now, so the question remains, if you are about to launch a project, whether it's a renovation or a new build, What's better? Should you aim for a high Homestar rating or should you go for Passive House? Now, you don't, the, well, the, the bottom line is you don't have to choose because it's not a case of one or the other. They're not mutually um, exclusive and the you can do both. And I would encourage you to have a, a, to consider that option, particularly if it is in your budget. So here's the thing. Passive house, like I mentioned, will ensure, in fact, it will measure and you'll only get it if you have very good attention to detail with your thermal envelope. And that will ensure that you have the ability to maintain a comfortable, healthy temperature. You'll have a dry uh, interior, so your air quality will be very good. And it will consume not very much energy in order to achieve that and maintain that over the course of the year. Now, if you did that in a house, that would put you in a very good position for also getting a higher Homestar rating. 
What? It, but it wouldn't guarantee a high home star rating. It would provide you with the uh, good chunk of points in one of the most important areas of Homestar, which is energy, health, and comfort. So energy, health, and comfort uh, accounts for 48% of the whole Homestar rating. And most of that 48% is around energy use, and most of that energy use is to do with space heating. Uh, and that also looks a little bit at things like the air tightness and ventilation moisture control and sort of the basic R values and insulation levels of the home. So Homestar is more holistic because it also looks at other areas of sustainability like water, waste, the management of the house and the site, so the, the section, your landscaping, those sorts of things. So as an overall environmental sustainability tool, Homestar gives you a more holistic idea passive house is more focused on those specific points around energy and airflow air tightness so i guess it depends on what your main area of interest is now i should have also stated that i have a little bit of a um an interest a little bit of a bias there because i do work quite heavily involved uh during the day in homestar it's what i do so um, I have a natural tendency towards that. However, I do know that there are lots of people in the industry who are on one side of the fence fairly strongly around Passive House. Some people love it, some people don't. I think it's very good, and I think it, it uh, and I, I've had this conversation with Elron and uh, with John Eilif as well, and others. I think it has a, a really important part to play in leading by good example. So I'm interested in other people's thoughts on that question about what's better or what you would go for, whether you would uh, build to a passive house. Does passive house inspire you? Would you like to, do you seek to uh, build a high homestar rating? Let me know your thoughts. I'd be interested in that. And hopefully, Jeff, that goes in some way to answering your question. The other thing I wanted to mention today before I get into the interview was to talk about podcasts. Very quickly, I just wanted to acknowledge a couple of the other podcasts that I am listening to at the moment. One is called um, The Entrepreneur Entrepreneur Architect, and I'm hoping to have Mark LePage on the show. We've chatted a few times, and I, unfortunately, I had a bit of a technical mal malfunction in Christchurch a couple of weeks ago, and we didn't quite hook up. But Mark is an architect in the US and he has recently launched his own uh, podcast and it's fantastic. And if you get the chance, head on over to uh, Entrepreneur Architect and have a listen to his episode zero. It is awesome. Uh, very, very inspirational. And um, yeah, well, take my hat off to you, Mark, because it's, it's one great way to launch a podcast series. Of course, Ben's show, House Planning Help, definitely hit, check that out. And also check out our uh, Google Hangout that we recorded last week. That was that was good fun. Thanks, Ben, for uh, setting that up. Uh, the Ideas Architect, there's a new one that I've come across, and I'll, I'll put links to all these in the show notes, but Ideas Architect, that's not necessarily, it's not actually a show about architecture or about design. It's, it's a bit more of a business and, uh, well, I, it's about ideas. Um, it, it's hosted by a former architect 
but his business now is as a sort of business consultancy. But some great ideas there about design and the and um, some sort of newer age thinking. The other podcast that I listen to quite regularly is – well, it's actually the radio, but it's via podcast because the shows that I'm interested in are never at a time when I can listen to them. So I listen to a few Radio NZ uh, shows. Typically I tune in to 9 to noon, a couple of segments there. I love catching up with uh, Rod Orham's news. I listen to the, the tech uh, technology correspondent each week that speaks to Catherine Ryan. And also there's a few interesting spots that I like to listen to from the Saturday uh, This Way Up with um, Simon um, Simon Morton. So that's a couple of uh, podcasts that I listen to and, and I do listen to some others as well, but they're sort of the, the ones that are most relevant to this show. Again, let me know what you listen to. I'm interested in what else is out there. What are some good shows that you recommend to this uh, to the audience here that people might benefit from if you're looking at um, new ideas around homes and, and design and creating a better home. All right, that's enough for that for this week. I hope you enjoyed this interview. This is Alex Bruce from Etool. Today I am speaking with Alex Bruce from. Are you? I'm assuming you're in Perth. Is that right, Alex? We are all, all the way over in Western Australia, the, the most isolated city in the world, I believe. And just before we started recording, you were telling me how ideal the climate is in Perth. It is. It's. Um, I mean, I don't think people here realise how blessed they are. Everyone talks about how hot it is in summer and how cold it is in winter, but um, it's it, from 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 what we've looked at all the way around the world and buildings that we've looked at. I think yeah, we, we definitely have the easiest climate to get a building that doesn't need an air conditioner. Nice. Now you've got a a couple of interesting things going on that I am very interested to talk to you about. Firstly, eTool, which calculates well I'll let you explain exactly what it does can you also tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of inspired you towards doing what you do now wow um, the inspiration I guess uh, I don't know I guess I grew up with it a bit my family sort of have always been in the environmental space and I sort of followed what I was naturally um, tuned into which is engineering i went and did engineering studied studied that mechanical engineering and um but always wanted to sort of end up in some field in the environmental sense and uh back when i went to uni there was no renewable energy courses you could study so i did mechanical thinking that was probably a good sort of broad topic mm -hmm. that would then lead into renewable energy and then spent five i you know had a number of different jobs but worked in technology development um, again because that to me was, you know, although it wasn't renewable energy, it was something that would lend itself the knowledge mm -hmm. into renewable energy and then went and t took a working holiday in a wildlife sanctuary up in up in the far north of Western Australia and while I was wow. doing that I studied, um, studied uh, energy studies which is all about energy efficiency and renewable energy and then that led to working for a solar PV company and then starting my own solar PV company and then uh, from there eTool. Uh, I guess it was sort of a natural progression. I, um, When I was installing solar PV someone asked me or, or said oh look solar PV is not that sustainable because it takes more energy and carbon to make a solar panel 
then it will produce in its lifespan so it's not sustainable and, and at the time I didn't have an answer for that question so I felt fairly silly. Um, so I went and did the research and learnt what this whole idea of life cycle assessment was and that I guess stuck with me and then when I became a consultant in the building industry I wanted to ask the same question. It's, it's great to have a solar passive design with solar hot water and solar PV and so on but what about all that energy and carbon that goes into building them? Well, now there's quite quite a lot in there, Alex. You, you mentioned mm. that you started your own solar PV company. I'm yeah. assuming that's not something you just kind of do on a whim. Can you tell us a little bit about how you you went about doing that? Well, um, it started, I guess, you know, I was on this wildlife sanctuary and, and learning about renewable energy and... Um, well, it's a long story. I don't know how much, how, how long you want it, but <laughs> a guy dropped in. He literally came in in a helicopter to have a look at the solar system that ran our um, our satellite um, phone connection. For those that and for those that don't haven't seen it on the map, the north part of Western Australia is pretty remote. It is. It's and we were in a area that was probably one of the remote areas of the remote area of the Kimberley. Right. So. Uh, um, coming in in a helicopter was fairly standard. Yeah. It, it was this amazing wildlife sanctuary in, in um, this, you know, pristine. Well, some of it was pristine. We were, we were removing some of the cattle. It used to be an old cattle station. Um, it was a dream job, actually, because I was helping look after the local ecosystem while learning about, you know, renewable energy yeah. and global, global ecosystem issues, climate change. But anyway, so he dropped in um, to service the solar system and, I bailed him up and said, oh, you know, I'm interested in this stuff. And he said, well, why don't you come and work with it, with us? So the following year I worked with a, a group out in the Kimberley who's, you know, went around the place putting in these solar systems. So, again, a, a dream job for me. I got to travel around in this remote area putting in solar PV systems in the, the national parks and cattle stations and Aboriginal communities mm -hmm. and, and the like. So it was awesome. And then after a year of that, I... Um, I guess I always wanted to do something for myself, have my own business, and, and I felt that um, I didn't really want to sell solar PV, to be honest, because once you go into that, you're kind of you're stuck selling a single product, and rather than being independent and, and um, unbiased with your recommendations, you, you're sort of stuck. But because I was accredited to design and install these things, when I got back to Perth, back to the big smoke, um, Mum and Dad wanted one, so I put one in for them. Then the next door neighbour wanted one, so I did right. one for them. And then it just it just grew. So this was this was about seven years ago. The solar industry in in, in Australia was really small. There was yeah. At the time I started, there was six six installers in Perth, and I think we're now in the thousands. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so I, I you know it was a natural thing for me to do. I guess it just happened. Um, and it was it was really good fun, you know. I didn't have to. There was no sort of hardcore sales or marketing. It just was a natural thing that people wanted, and away I went. But when it did start to get big, and the big guys turned up, and the sales and marketing element of it became the most important part, I pulled out and um, went back to consulting, and that's where Exal sprang up from. Right, and. You mentioned a good question in there around the sustainability of solar panels. Did you find an answer to that question? Uh, yeah, I did. It was it was actually I was hit by the question when I went um, back to town. We were putting in a system out in the middle of nowhere. We came back to Broome, which is where our home base was for the business, and 
Um, so I was hit with a question at the pub. So I didn't really have the ability. Back then we didn't have iPhones, so I couldn't really it's do rude. a Google search at the pub. Um, so it was the next morning that I got up and I was a little bit groggy, but I, I jumped on Google and, and, and did the research. And yeah, look, sure enough, back in the early days when they first built them, they, they were very, very carbon and energy intensive and they didn't last very long and they weren't very efficient. Um, so they didn't pay themselves off, but you know, well, now, you know, depending on where you installed, I mean, if you installed it, say, for instance, in Victoria, where you have a very carbon intensive network, it's, you know, brown coal, um, it can pay itself off in under a year wow. uh, in, in carbon. Now, I, I don't know, I mentioned in New Zealand, you, you, you run on a fair bit of hydropower, is that correct? About 60% of our right. national grid, yep. So in your case, it be, might be more like five years, might even be longer. So. It's a really interesting part of life cycle assessment is that you can't just say, oh, this project is sustainable because yeah. um, it isn't always in every situation. And, and if you're running on hydro, your carbon intensity is really low. So in order to pay off that embodied carbon of the solar PV, it will take you a bit longer. How do you summarise LCA for someone who's never come across it? Oh, um, I guess someone described the other day as a total ecological footprint and uh, I guess it is, you know, it, it's about trying to understand every single impact associated with a product or process over its entire design life. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, in accounting, we've always done this. If you ask an accountant to do an analysis of a financial product, they will go, okay, well, what's the capital outlay? What's the ongoing maintenance cost? What's the interest rate? What's what's my, um, you know, annual return? What dividends am I going to get? And you know, how long am I going to have this financial product for? And so you look at the full life cycle of the product and, and it's, just, it's exactly the same mentality, but just applying it to, um, you know, a building, but in an environmental sense. So we also do life cycle costing, so we do that as well, but um, the environmental impacts are the same. So if you, if you looked at a building, you'd go, right, well, it starts life as, you know, raw elements in the ground somewhere. You've got to dig them up. You've got to processing, you've got to turn them into a building material, then you've got to transport it to your site, then have to assemble it. Um, you then use the building, which is what generally everyone focuses on is, you know, the, the operational energy, so the, the, the solar passive design, the solar PV, solar hot water sort of stuff. Uh, you then have to demolish it or, or, or it falls over and then you recycle it and hopefully put it back into that building material sort of life cycle and then start again. So. That's what a life cycle assessment does is understand all those impacts. But probably most importantly is what we call a functional unit, um, which you look at the life cycle impacts, but then you say, okay, well, what, what's, this, what's this building being used for? And, and a building, um, actually a good analogy, one that I often use is a coffee machine. Yeah. Um, so you've got two coffee machines. You've got, and if you can try and visualise this, you've got your cheap, little plastic extruder jobby that you get from the, the supermarket um, and it's really low in carbon you know it's made of extruded plastic they spit millions of them out a day and, and it's really lightweight and you've got on the other side you've got this stainless steel beautiful handmade machine from Italy and there's a huge amount of energy and carbon associated with building that machine then you go hang on that's not fair that yes if we did a quick, quick life cycle carbon impact analysis that the little cheap plastic one would win but you then say, well, what are they used for? Well, they're used to make cups of coffee. So if we look at the plastic one, you might get a couple of cups out of it a week at home and then just out of its warranty period, a little black little knobby on the side falls off. Yeah. 
and you chuck it in the bin. Yeah. The one on the other one, the bit the stainless steel one, might be smashing out a thousand a week or more at a cafe somewhere. After a year, it you know it's got a service contract, and someone comes out and cleans it and changes the filters, and away you go. And then three years later, the, the little stainless steel knob breaks, but there's a replacement part, and you put it in, and away you go again. So the kilograms of carbon per cup of coffee. I mean, if you're interested in carbon. Um, the carbon impact per cup of coffee for the stainless steel one suddenly is a hell of a lot better than the plastic one. Yeah. So a building's exactly the same. You, you look at a house, for instance, you might have a house that's made from tightly recycled materials. It might be solar passive design beautifully, solar PV, solar hot water, um, and it's awesome. There's only one person living in it, and it's in an area that's getting more density, you know, they're probably going to put townhouses mm. there in a few years' time. So it gets knocked over. Then you've got the building, the other building, which is just a normal business as usual design. Might be a set of townhouses with normal materials, normal solar passive design, but might have, you know, 10 times the occupancy. So the kilograms of carbon per person, which is the functional unit for the townhouses, might be way better than this magical 10-star solar passive recycled material building. Mm. And that's that's the really interesting part when it comes to life cycle design is that not only do you have to understand the full life cycle impacts, but you also need to understand what's the point of this building, you know, what's the function of yeah, it. Right. Um, yeah. So I taking from that that it's a complex area and it's not always what you think it might seem from the onset. It might very true. Yeah. People typically say, oh, you're the life cycle assessment guys. You come and tell us about the concrete we should use or the steel we should use right. or maybe we put some recycled timber in. Um, but really, life cycle design starts at the planning phase. It, it helps inform what style of building is, is going to get the best result in that particular suburb or that particular you know location, yep. um, how to make it as functional as you possibly can. Um, you know how to make it last as long as you can. If you, you know, if it was a, if a house, for instance, um, it's interesting. We did some projects in, in mining camps. Now, obviously, they have a very short design life, so you have to design accordingly. Use materials that are, are better designed for reuse or, 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 or um, lower embodied carbon um, than you would say in a building that might last two hundred years. So, yeah, yeah it's it's a, it's a planning um, life cycle design. You know, gets used or should be used right at the planning phase. Yeah. Um, and it's only once you've got a design concept and, and you start getting into the detail about okay, should we use a, you know a recycled timber product versus you know, should, or should we get recycled timber that's coming from the other side of the country or use a local steel product instead? It, you know, it, it takes, you know, you, you, once once you've got your planning, that's when you start talking about this stuff. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's really it's really exciting spot to be now that people are getting that, that we're getting invited to the design concept phase of projects, which is really nice. I really like what you said about, the purpose of a building and that being a determinant to figure out what makes a good building in that context and not. And that's something that I'm hearing more and more when I talk to people on Homestyle Green is that question about what's the purpose of the building. And I think that that's a question that's not often asked uh, in, mm. the, in the design phase. And there are a lot of assumptions that may about the purpose of a building. Mm. Uh, and clearly that, that can influence the end result. The other thing that you mentioned there was if people care about carbon, 
Who cares about carbon? A good question. Um, a, a lot of people, it's really interesting, especially when you, you get them at the beginning of a design concept phase, um, before they've already decided how it's going to look or, or what, what the scale of it's going to be or you know what the function is. Um, because I think often what happens is people, they dream of their, des- you know, they, 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 just, they start thinking of their dream house, for instance, and they start designing it in their head and then they'll get an architect on board and they'll start designing it and they're like, oh, yes, but we want it to be eco-friendly or whatever, and they don't really know what that means. Yeah. And by the time they get there, they've already designed the thing, and any change is a mass. It, it, it might not even be a big change to the design, but psychologically they're going, hmm, that, you know, I've already gone to bed thinking about this magical home and how it's going to look and feel, and now you've got this annoying consultant coming and telling me that maybe we should use a different material there or a different style of PV or whatever, and it's... It, you know, you'll get them sort of feeling that I'm not so interested anymore. But at the beginning, if you can say, hey, look, this is a really easy thing to do. If we start, you know, right at the design concept phase, we can easily get you a building that's zero carbon. And they they start, that becomes part of their, their design um, philosophy. Then they seem to be a lot more interested in it. So, um, yeah, we, we find that most people are, you've approached in the right way. Uh, the homeowners that or the people who are actually going to own these houses, the industry that's supplying the houses has become really interesting. We've got a number of really big developers now across the line who are going, initially they didn't want to do it because they felt that the customers or the end client wasn't interested, but now they're realising how interested people are. I mean, take for instance, solar PV mm-hmm. in Australia, over 15% of houses now have solar PV, wow. which means... I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, Not but that's that massive. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're basically looking at, at 15% of your potential market that you're selling into has taken the time to look at quotes, haggle with suppliers and pay money for the thing to get it on their roof. So it's a huge, and that's the people who have done it. So there's a massive other element who haven't done it yet, but are thinking of it. So, But that's, know, now, pure, that's mostly an economic decision, isn't it? I don't think so. Um, it, 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 well, I don't know. I, I'm not a psychologist, but um, there's def- definitely an element of cost there. Mm-hmm. But um, there's so many other things you can spend your money on yep. to True. save money. True. Um, and and that they've actually chosen to go, yep, well, that's the thing I'm going to choose to save money on. Mm-hmm. It also happens to have a, um, an environmental return. So, I, look, I think it's a bit of both. So is carbon the best measure of sustainability for a building? Uh, no. Well, hang on. That's a good question again. Um, to me, it, it is, um, but I would never say a zero carbon house is a sustainable house. You know, the definition of sustainability, um, well, the classic one, I guess, is, is, is doing things in such a way that's not going to compromise, you know, future generations yeah. to enjoy the same quality of life. So that's social sustainability, mm-hmm. economic sustainability, environmental sustainability. Now, carbon's only one small part of environmental sustainability, so it is definitely not the defining metric of a sustainable building, but it seems to have this nice um, mix. Like, a, a, to us, when we find a low car, like a really good low-carbon design, it's, t- it's genuine, it, typically it's it's good financially, like it, it, it can have, you know, pretty good capital outlay to get it there or a low capital outlay and it's also got low ongoing costs. Um, 
but it also has uh, a good social benefits as well. Right. When we look at it anyway, I mean, the most sustainable buildings that we have, that we look at, um, and, and, and this is something that's really interesting and we're learning about it, it, it typically is a sort of, um, I don't know if you call them townhouses, but sort of two, three-storey dwellings. Yeah, sort of medium um, dense. Medium, medium density, At, yeah. Attached um, or, yeah. or detached? Yeah, attached. Yeah. No, no, definitely like them attached. Those terrace, row house type yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. One of the reasons we like them attached is because it's hard for a developer to knock them down. They have to own all of them in the complex before someone can knock them down and build something else. Right. So you increase the design life. But the functionality is awesome. You know, you've got a lot of people living in a small area. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, there's social benefits, obviously, you know, with that. There's transport benefits. There's, you know, community benefits. Obviously, mixed density is great. So you can have that sort of mixed socioeconomic um, dynamic in, in, a, in an area. So, yeah, while, while you can't point at carbon and say, oh, that is the be-all and end-all, it, um, it does help, you know, it, it, it generally relates well to the economics and the social element. Yeah. Um, but we always say to people, you can't use, like what we do at ETIL, which is to provide that carbon metric, we always say to people, you can't use that as your tick-the-box sustainability method. It's, it's just part of the cog of, you know, getting a, right. a good, good outcome. Is a carbon zero or carbon neutral house a zero energy house? Uh, no. Uh, generally it is, but, uh, you know, as we are talking about before, energy and carbon aren't always aren't directly related. For instance, you guys being on predominantly hydro have a different um, carbon intensity than we do in, in Perth. We've got coal and gas and Melbourne is, you know, brown coal so you know, energy and carbon aren't always directly related and I think unfortunately people often do just use the two interchangeably and you can in most cases but sometimes it goes really pear-shaped yeah. when someone's purely looking at energy efficiency or they're purely looking at carbon they can kind of miss, miss things. So tell us about eTool, how does it work and what can people do with it? So um, what is it? It's a, it's a life cycle design tool. So sort of everything we've been talking about, this idea of trying to understand that life cycle impact um, and functionality, the functional unit, that's what eTool is. It's, it's a, I guess, a streamlined life cycle design tool. Typically, life cycle assessments has been about looking at a, a material, like an individual material in, in a lot of detail, like a brick. You know, might go and do a life cycle assessment of a, a brick manufacturer and determine how much carbon is associated with that brick. Mm -hmm. Well, we went, that's awesome, but we need people who are in, you know, design, anyone from mums and dads, you know, doing a renovation through to, you know, big commercial buildings through to infrastructure projects. I mean, we looked at bridges and solar farms and all sorts of stuff. We, we wanted a tool that anyone could access um, at the design concept phase to help inform what they were doing. And because we just saw it as such a massive, important um, element in, in good design. So that's what eTool is. It's, we built our own software essentially because we couldn't find anything out there that could do it yeah. um, in, in, a, in, an, in an accessible fashion. And, and you know, that, that means you know, affordable that, that someone who's doing a renovation can afford to actually use the software and, and have a look at it. So I'm doing a big renovation or I'm thinking about building a new house. How mm -hmm. would I incorporate using eTool into that process? Two ways, I guess. One, um, 
we're happy if people don't even have to use the software. I mean, I'd love people just to go on our website and have a look at what we do yep. and just start thinking about, you know, where does stuff come from? You know, what am I using this building for? You know, just building lifecycle design into your philosophy. You know, you don't even have to use the software to make some really good decisions about what you're doing. Um, but then if you go, no, I actually want to know the numbers, you know, I actually want to quantify this stuff, yep. um, you can jump in. The, the software itself is free to access and, and the reason we did that again was because we wanted everyone from mums and dads through to you know big guys to be able to, to use this thing um and it's free to access and use unless you use it for commercial gain right. so if you're a mum and a dad and you're doing the renovation awesome go in there have a crack at it that there's a bunch of self-help videos and so on that you know might get you through mm -hmm. um and you might just want to know should i use solar hot water or solar pv and you could just go in there and do that analysis for yourself and go oh look yeah the solar pv or what size solar pv system <coughs> should i put in things like that that you um, you can go in and do yourself and, and get a good answer. If you know if you're an architect and you're using it on behalf of a client, um, then obviously we want you to, to help support the software so we can sure. keep it all going. Yep. And further to that, if you know if you get in there and you go, oh, look, this is awesome, but I haven't got the time to to learn how to use this software. Well, then just get in, in touch with us and and we can do it for you. Right. Um, now. You've got a whole bunch of other stuff that you're involved in, and we, we don't have time to, to cover that all today. But um, maybe just tell us how, how's it going? How's how's it all going, and uh, how are things tracking? Brilliant. Look, we, we've been out for four years now, and you know, it's like I was going to say it's like any business startup, but it's not. It's it's even wilder than any normal business startup <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it has its ups and downs. You know, um, any business startup is going to have ups and downs, but even more so when you've got a new product. And it's not a new concept. Lifecycle assessment is not a new concept, yeah. but I guess trying to apply it to buildings and trying to make it mainstream, yeah. that's new. And that, that's yeah. been an amazing bringing, challenge. Bringing uh, LCA to mum and dad, I think that's, yeah. a, <laughs> that's a huge challenge. It is. It is. So, I mean, it's been really good fun, really exciting. And, um, you know, I can say it now because, you know, we're doing really well. But, um, you know, there were moments when you're just going, my God, what have we got ourselves into? But, uh, yeah, look, we're now, I can't remember what the latest the latest number was, but it was it's well over 700 users of the software globally. Um, it is a globally available software and, um, you know, we're doing work in, in the US and in the UK. So, right. and, and we've got everyone from mums and dads doing renovations through to, Big commercial projects, big multi-residential, high-rise apartment buildings, um, as I mentioned, infrastructure projects and, and the like. So, yeah, it's, it's really good. And I think what's really nice for us is more and more we are doing real work with the software and, and consulting than spending our time um, just explaining what it is. Right. You know, we still do a lot of education, a lot of lectures and a lot of presentations, but it's really interesting now after four years is the I look at what I used to say versus what I say now. It's totally different because most people get what I'm talking yeah, about right. when, you, when you say life cycle. Yep. And that's cool. That's very exciting. So the, the market is starting to move and you're starting to educate the masses. It is. And it's becoming legislated, um, you know, and, and built into things. You know, we've got that Green Building too. Council here in Australia. Yeah. yeah and, and, and lead over in America. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, Bream in the UK, and there's things like Living Building Challenge. I'm not sure if you're familiar yep, with that. Absolutely. Those guys out of Seattle. Oh, cool. Well, they, they've now put us in the list of tools that you can use to to um, 
to, to go through their process wow. for, for the zero carbon. So and is that yeah, globally? Like that are awesome. Yeah, that's globally. Wow, that's so, awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're working with those guys. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Bioregional and One Planet Living. They're from the UK. That they've done a really a bunch of really cool developments right. and. They have another sort of, they call it, it's not a rating system, it's a framework, a sustainability framework called One Planet, which is all about trying to ensure that what you're building is sustainable in a, in a One Planet philosophy, that, you know, if everyone in the world did that, would, you know, how many planets would we require to, 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 to everyone live like that? So to have a, a One Planet rating means that you've got a building that theoretically everyone in the world could, could yeah, right. live in. Um, and, then, and, and so we were working with them and using eTool to define what, you know, carbon level of carbon is is for that one planet. Um, so, yeah, it's it's um, it's awesome. It's, I guess the other one, the other big news we saw the other day was in the, the, the new British standard, British and European standard for, um, f for analysis of sustainability of buildings is life cycle assessment. So it, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely definitely moving quickly. Right, so it is becoming the way to measure sustainability. Mm, yeah. Hey, look, we uh, we better um, finish off before you go, Alex. Tell us a a book that's inspired you that uh, you recommend to listeners. Uh, the book would be "Making Your Home Sustainable" by by Derek Ridley. Um, it's very. I don't know when it was published, but it's. It, it you know. I think it was back in '91. So I imagine a lot of it's not totally up to date. But um, what I really liked about it was its pragmatic approach. It wasn't um, preaching a particular technology or particular design. It had a really good whole of building. It was almost life cycle assessment approach. You know, maybe that helped my way of thinking about how you get something sustainable. Right. Um, and uh, how can people find out more and connect with you? Uh, just head to our website, which is www.etool.net.au. Um, but, yeah, we, we love to chat to people. If anyone wants to get in touch and, and have a Skype or an email conversation, feel free because, you know, we think still a lot of what we're doing is still education and, and awareness. Uh, yeah, love to talk to Kai. Great. And now, like, like I mentioned, there are other projects like your your own renovations and various other things mm. you're involved in, which <laughs> we don't have time to chat to uh, yeah. you about today, but maybe some other time in the future we'd be good to get Definitely. you back on and uh, – and we'll keep tracking how things are going as well because I think that's a really interesting yep. point about that change in people's awareness of these sorts of issues and the mo also the change in the motivation of doing things yeah. as well. So, um, yep. hey, well done over the last uh, three or four years and uh, good luck to continued growth and, and continued impact as well because I guess that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Definitely, yeah. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Likewise, man. Yeah, really appreciate it, and and hopefully we can hook up with some people in in New Zealand and um, show you what we do. We'd like that. All right. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you very much. Cheers. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed that show. Very quickly, a couple of things that I took out of this week's episode. Firstly, what's the purpose of the building? And I was it was fantastic to hear Alex say that because we have mentioned that a few times on the show and I think it's such an important question for your design process, whether you're renovating or building from new, what's the purpose that you're trying to achieve with, uh, with that project? 
Um, in very crude terms, LCA, I think Alex mentioned it once there, was where does stuff come from? And I think that sums up quite nicely what LCA is all about. Um, sounds a little bit superficial, but it, it, the deeper meaning of, of that is is the important stuff, is, is where does all the stuff that we use to build and to run our homes, where does it come from? And that's really the purpose of good life cycle analysis. And the third point that I took out of that interview was that tools like eTool and some of the great work that Alex and his team are doing, and perhaps Homestar, I would like to think, and Passive House and Briam Lead, um, the all those other tools that are out there at the moment, are starting to have an impact because Alex said that he's, the conversations he's having now with people are different from when he first started with eTool back a few, three or four years ago. And I think that's a really exciting uh, development. It's basically meaning that people's mindsets are changing for, for one reason or another. But the efforts of people like Alex and people who are creating good homes and, and people are, who are putting some different ideas out there are starting to have an impact and starting to change some of the questions that consumers are asking and change the values of what we put into our buildings. Love your comments on today's show. You can get in touch with me, comments at homestylegreen.com. You can also head over to our Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter at M Cutler Welsh, or one word, M-C-U-T-L-E-R-W-E-L-S-H. I'm also on Google+. Plus. Uh, that's an interesting space. I think that's growing a little bit, um, especially with those uh, those Hangouts. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. So whichever way works for you, love to connect, find out what's going on for you. Perhaps you've got an interesting project that you'd like to come on the show and tell us all about. Um, and I'm also on the hunt for really good products and really good services. So if that fits into something that you do, then do let me know because I'm keen to help others connect with really good products and really good services in the building industry. That's it from me for this week. Thank you very much for listening in. The show wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And if you do enjoy the show, please let others know and would love to get your comments and ratings over on iTunes as well. I'm Matthew Cutler-Welsh and you've been listening to Homestyle Green. Homestyle Green.